Hi, welcome to the Penis Project podcast. This is the place to come to find out everything you've always wanted to know about men's health but were too embarrassed to ask. Join physiotherapist Dr. Joe Milios and sexologist nurse practitioner Melissa Hadley-Barrett as they talk to real men and the experts about men's private parts. Have a burning question you really want to know the answer to? Please subscribe to our website at thepenisproject.org and just ask us. The greater the length, the greater the strength, the more time I've got for you. There's too much talking, texting, tweeting, posting. Too much noise altogether. In silence is strength and peace and space. Imagine silence forever. The Penis Project podcast is proudly supported and sponsored by PROST, Exercise for Prostate Cancer, and the RS Health Penile Rehabilitation Program. PROST is a not-for-profit charity set up by myself in 2012 that aims to help men exercise during their experience with prostate cancer. If you want to know anything more about PROST, including our online service and USB product now available, please just go to prost.com.au. Hi, I'm Melissa Hadley-Barrett and I designed the Penile Rehabilitation Program to help men recover from prostate cancer. It's an online program built on decades worth of knowledge and experience and practice. It's the only one of its kind in the world and it actually works. So if you've been diagnosed with prostate cancer and want to get your penis working again as quickly as possible, and why wouldn't you, then visit penilerehabilitationprogram.com and you'll be off and running. And it only takes about 15 minutes a day. All the best with your recovery, which I promise will never be as bad as you think. November 11, 11am, 60 seconds, kids watch on the wall. In the pub, in the tab, in the cars, we remember... Welcome to the Penis Project podcast. Today, Melissa and I are delighted to have a magical person amongst us. He is known as Peter, but it just so happens his initials make up the word Pan. So he's very happy to be known today as Peter Pan. Welcome along to our podcast today, Peter Pan. <laughs> Thanks for that. I'm not sure if excited to be called Peter Pan is true, but go, go with what you like. <laughs> well, look, you were just saying before that you've been blessed with eternal youth, and that I is think I have. Peter Pan, the man who never grows, the boy who never grows up. So, so go for it, Joe. Ask us, ask away. So, Peter Pan, we would love to know your story in terms of your prostate cancer experience. We did have the opportunity to meet preoperatively, and that was about two months before your surgery in uh, about November of. 2021 and then you went on to have your surgery in early February of 2022 so that is something I'd really like to get your ideas about did you find it a bit daunting to have physio so early on or was it something that you look forward to or how did you find the whole physio pelvic floor experience oh the, that was a big help and and happy to get involved um it might come up a bit later on but one of my early chats was with the prostate uh, health nurse at the Prostate Cancer Foundation. Um, and when I mentioned, oh, sorry, no, it was a little bit later than that. I mentioned rather the prostate health nurse I was talking to that uh, my urologist had recommended that I have some uh, appointments with a physio to talk about pelvic floor exercises prior to surgery. Yeah. She said, hey, that's a really good sign because most urologists don't even think about that. So that was the first sort of encouragement that I had that things were going to go well for me. Um, but look, yeah, you were awesome. The um, the appointments I had were good. Um, you know, 
I tried some pelvic floor exercises at home myself first and, you know, grabbing the dumbbell and having that slip. It's <laughs> no, a bad joke. Um, I ended up with some badly soiled dumbbells and then I thought I'd better get some, get some professional help. So we got some professional help. Yes, and, and uh, yeah, first couple of appointments, I think, you know, the uh, the ultrasound viewing that you did said, hey, you, you can locate it, you can do the right thing. Um and as it turns out, I think I had a really good result starting early and, uh, and following up after surgery. So I think that was the one of the key parts of what you know what's worked for me. How did you feel, Peter, when you first found out you had prostate cancer? <sighs> yeah, that's a devastating thing. Mm. Um, it, I, look, part of what I, I'm talking to you guys because Kendall suggested that you know I've got a bit of a good news story. Mm. Um, and I think I was I was really lucky through the whole process. Um, my GP picked up a slight change in my PSA, uh, went from 2.8 to 4.1, um, pointed me off for an MRI and then biopsy and, and, you know, those are a couple of other stories. But the diagnosis itself was, it's it's a bit shattering. It takes a little bit of time to actually hit. Um, and I, I, I think because my cancer wasn't that far advanced, uh, it, it probably makes that, that knockout punch of, hey, you've got cancer, uh, a lot easier. I, I, with a prostate cancer support group in Ocean Reef. And uh, we've got a couple of guys there who have, you know, a little bit older, had diagnoses where their prostate's really well advanced, um, which I could imagine would be a thoroughly, you know, life-altering and disheartening thing. But for me, it was, yeah, it was, it was bad, but, um, you know, you, you just deal with it. The most frustrating part of that was the immediate after effect of, hey, here's this problem you've got. But you need to decide what surgery, I mean, what uh, what treatment option you're going to have. That's, I'm sure you've heard that before yet. I can see you nodding your head. That's the most frustrating and traumatic part of the whole thing, I think. Yeah, I hear that often. Guys go, I just wish someone would tell me what the right path is, not give me the choice. And I think that's really hard for people. It is. Well, and you know that a lot of people that you're talking to know what the best thing is. The um, One of the prostate health nurses that I spoke to, I, I knew that she knew what, the best treatment option for me was given uh, my biopsy results and, and some other things, but I knew she wouldn't tell me. And I even said that. I said, you're not going to tell me, are you? You know what the right thing is. She said, I can't. Um, and as it turns out, I mean, everybody is a little bit different. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the hardest bit. So what swayed you to choose surgery? Probably the follow-up options if the cancer came back. So I think fairly early on uh, I got advice that if you have radiation as your first-up treatment um, and cancer comes back, then surgery is not a viable option. Mm. And people are sort of reluctant to then re-radiate the same area. So I thought, well, if it doesn't work, um, what's next? Is it you know hormone replacement? Is it chemo? Is it some really nasty stuff? Um, I think... The advice from the urologist about my stage of cancer was uh, was was leading towards surgery. Um, obviously, being a, a surgeon, he recommended surgery. But I, I did go and talk to a radiation oncologist at the uh, at the Cyberknife Clinic. Am I allowed to mention names? Yes, you are. We did. actually have interviewed the Cyberknife Clinic. We're, we're friends with all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I can't remember the name of the the oncologist I spoke to there, but uh, he was one person that did say to me, "Hey, you're a prime candidate for surgery." And I didn't that's expect what that I, from a I love about the cyber knife because it was probably um, Professor David Joseph. Um, he heads up the clinic there. He's the main oncologist, or there's a couple of others, Colin Tang. Mm-hmm. 
a couple of others, and um, they're, they're the first to appropriately recommend surgery over CyberKnife. And if that's their product, then you've got to have a bit of trust in them for being so honest and honest. Uh, yeah, I, I really did appreciate yeah. that. So that that really did help the decision. Um, and he said, "Look, for you, I'd recommend surgery." Said as a as a if he was a patient himself, he said he'd go radiation because surgery scares the hell out of it but it wasn't something that scared me um it talking to you i think joe too that um my particular urologist operated on uh, one of your family members and um yeah. people kept telling me i had one of the one of the one of the good guys i was i was pretty confident and happy once i made that decision now we we know how old you are but you peter pan sound very young so <laughs> could you reveal your age if you don't mind yeah i'm 57 you were 56 when you went through this so we would say anyone under 65 is actually a young patient. And actually okay. the recommendation is not to bother testing anyone over 75, which is a little bit sad, I find, because I've met a bundle of men in their 80s who have had excellent outcomes from prostate cancer surgery and treatments because they've looked after themselves so well. So in my mm-hmm. opinion, um, you know, 56, 57 is, is a very young patient. Melissa, your youngest patient and mine is probably the same. Mine, it's been 36. Yeah, no, yeah, I think mine was 37 or 36. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So a lot of people do think of an old man's disease, but it certainly ain't. And the median age of patients that I see, I worked out in when I did my research, was 62. Yeah, okay. And the average man in Australia lives to 80. So we really want to offer patients, I think, an opportunity to choose a treatment that's going to have less burden as they get older as well. So that's just one of the things that um, in surgery, we know the outcomes will be short-term and they'll be immediate. Whereas when yep. we have radiation therapies, we know that the short-term side effects will be minimal, but the long-time, long-term effects will be worse over time. And we don't know to what extent, and that can include the bowel problems as well. So it's really confronting for patients to have to choose. But I would generally say the younger you are, the probably more um, guidance towards surgery is, is the theme of the day. Would you agree, Melissa? Yeah, I think so. I think it depends as well on where it is in your prostate. And I'm always very careful when patients ask me to do what probably infuriates them and say, my job is to whatever treatment you decide to help you get your sexual function back and to stop your penis from shrinking. I'm not a cancer specialist. Yeah. So to take the advice of the radiation oncologist and the surgeon and then weigh it up. So, Mm -hmm. And also the prostate cancer nurses, they don't have, you know, a bias about what it is. So I think it's great that they're a really good point of call as well to find out, which sounds like you did all of those things and that worked out well for you. But the thing is that there's a lot less discussion around the post-side effects of radiation. It's really Mm -hmm. under under acknowledged actually mm-hmm. and i meet many patients who do have radiation therapy and didn't get warned of the potential side effects from all over the world not just here we, we have no research even in my field in physiotherapy so that's what we're trying to get some ground trying to fix. At the moment. Yeah. That, the that's what i found the most sorry that's what i found the most frustrating things you know my my Briggs personality I'm a, I'm a definite st personality i need data to help me make a decision yeah uh, and i would have thought there was you know research and data to say hey at 56 if you have radiation here's your chance of recurrence here's what side effects you can expect yeah. or not what i can expect but what's happened historically and yeah. same for surgery but you know not that it's going to be the same for everybody but that data helps you look at what risk have I got, what side effects potential is there and then you make your decision based on that and 
the lack of that was really, really, really frustrating. And it's hard for us as well. And that's why we can't say this is better for you or not, because it's a you've got to have options to understand it all. Like, yeah. And I think as well, the research, it's a very difficult area to collect data on because every person is so individual that it is different whether or not you've got diabetes or arthritis or your weight or a big prostate versus a small prostate yeah, anatomy or your genetic profile and so it's kind of like you know it's not like you can when you're comparing individual cases you can't go oh a gleason whatever should be this way or this way because you also have to consider in that all those extraneous variables yep um so it is really difficult and i'm just thinking of a uh, two couples i saw in the same day a few weeks back and um, they were both referred to me actually by a surgeon and they were both um, like late 70s, early 80s, both very fit and well and would have done fine with surgery. One couple said, one of the guys said, if I am incontinent for the rest of my life, it will depress me so much I know I'll be suicidal because I won't be able to do anything and I don't care about my sexual function. Yeah. And the other guy said, I couldn't care less if I have to wear a nappy, nappy for the rest of my yeah. life as long as I can get an erection. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And so I just said the same thing I always say, which is it's I can't advise you on what's going to be your best outcome from a survival point of view. But to the guy who really wanted to get an erection back, I was like, you should probably choose the surgery option. But the guy who was already 80 and... Um, didn't care less about that, but really was going to be upset about wearing a nappy. I was like, I think radiation might yeah. be the best option for you because by the time that is really bad for continents. Which will be five to ten plus years. You're not going to be around maybe. <laughs> so, you know, and he was like, okay, I really appreciate that because yeah. so I think there's also that to consider. It's mm -hmm. like what's important to you in your long-term quality of life. Oh, so, and and those, those goalposts change. You know, me, mm -hmm. the first thing I thought was, hey, I want this cancer gone. I don't care if I wear a nappy forever. I don't care if I never get another erection. I want the cancer gone. Mm. And and that's another thing that really pointed me towards surgery because the, the post-surgery analysis of the prostate, which we can probably talk about a little bit later, was something that will tell you whether it's, you know, it's mostly gone or, or completely sort of covered. Um, those, goalposts, those, those goalposts change. You know, as soon as the cancer was gone and I had some good results there and the continents came back pretty quickly, I thought, well, Okay, the continence is coming back. Now I really do care if I get erections back. Yeah, um, yeah. I would say that. You know, all the time. So six months before that, I was quite happy to say I'll never, I'll, I never, care, I don't care if I ever have another one. But I might just summarise your continence recovery because <clears throat> we'll get on to what's happening now with Kendall and the sexual side because Melissa hasn't yeah. actually worked with you, so she's probably got some probing questions. I have. Okay. So just as an overview, you had your first post-operative consultation with me exactly two weeks after your surgery. And yep. you roughly had the catheter for a week. You came to me um, using two level two pads per 24 hours. You'd actually weighed your pads, had a total leakage of 46 grams, which is pretty much nothing. Pretty much so you did very well from day one. Um, then two weeks later, I got you to come along again. You said you'd been yo-yoing a bit. And that was because you've actually increased your level of activity, activity. As often happens between week two and week four, people go from having that surgical experience and laying low to getting mm -hmm. back into normal activity you'd actually had an interesting night you'd had a bit of an indulgence in alcohol and you had a bit of a blowout 180 yeah. gram leakage but still on the whole you were around about the 35 <clears throat> gram leakage and then you talked about having um 
the opportunity one month later to become very active. You'd gone for a walk to a place called Whitwood's Nodes. I always like that word, nodes. Nodes, yeah. Um, you'd pretty much been dry and had stopped wearing pads from that day and that you were already using a vacuum pump and considering the penile injections working with Kendall, that the only pad that you had weighed recently was 20 grams, but you really felt like there was just a few drops in it, so it was hardly an effort. So in summary, you did six weeks pelvic floor pre-op training. Within eight weeks of surgery, you were completely pad-free and constant, doing you know pretty vigorous things. And that is what I call the three-month perfect story Peter Pan because okay. I feel it takes three months of the pelvic floor muscle to build up to take over the average prostate it's like yeah. building scaffolding so that's six weeks before the eight weeks after and subtract those middle two weeks with a catheter in and the catheter out in the first weeks and there's your three month um continence recovery in a nutshell how does that all sound to you in summary does that reflect what you recall it does, yeah. I think one of the early wins too was I think I was dry at night from maybe only a few days after the catheter came out. Um, so that was the first sign that things were looking pretty good. Um, dry nights were great. You know, lying in that horizontal position, there's uh, less pressure and, and less temptation for leakage, I suppose. So that was a really good sign and that was encouraging really early on. But, yeah, having things pretty much sorted eight weeks after surgery, I, was, I couldn't have been happy with that result. That was good. Did you think that the overall experience of continence was better, worse? or, you know, about what you expected it to be? Oh, probably better if there's some, you know, if there's an upside to having your, your prostate removed. Um, going to the toilet beforehand was a bit of a slow and frustrating process for a number of years, and, and now it's it's like a racing car pit stop. You know, it's uh, you're in, you're out. Listen. I said pit stop. Ooh. Quick change of tyres, you know, the vroom, vroom, and you're gone. <laughs> So many times guys will say, my God, if I had have known that I would pee so easily, I would have just got my prostate out even without <laughs> cancer. <laughs> it, it, is, it is the really good upside, yes. And there's another good upside. I personally, if I, if I don't get good night's sleep after two or three nights, I'm a bit of a train wreck. So I always say to guys, it's a wonderful bonus. Your prostate is not going to get bigger as you get older. You're going to get less interruptions through the night. You're going to have much better quality sleep for everyone yep. because most men's prostates get bigger as they get older as well as causing problems potentially. So uh, you know what? It's there's a couple of upsides there. Yeah. I, I look, the best upside is still, hey, I don't have cancer anymore. Yeah. Um, but, and you know, I never had problems getting up in the middle of the night, but, yeah, that probably, as you suggest, would have got older. Okay. I would have so got worse speak, if I got older. Speaking of getting up and upside, I'm going to move to Melissa. She's got some oh, questions yeah. about getting it up. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to ask a quick question before we talk about getting it up, though. What about... Um, PSA anxiety. Do you, did you feel like when you were going for your first PSA test, whether did you feel like nervous about getting that result, or did you feel really confident? That's after the surgery. Mm. Yeah. Oh, after. Yeah. That. Um, yes and no. Um, I'm trying to think. After a couple, it would have been a couple of weeks after the biopsy. I had that um, the biopsy report, and I remember one of the follow-up appointments. Joe, you asked to have a look at that. Yes. And then you looked at the nomogram numbers for. Um, for what? What were the nomogram numbers? It was just a prediction of where your PSA might be. Might be, yeah. And mine? Year, three year and five years post prostatectomy based on what they yep. found at pathology on surgical day. Yeah, and I recall you saying that my score was the highest one you'd ever seen. I think you said you don't see, you see a lot of them around 97, a few above that. Mine was 98.6. Um, 
So that was another big smiley day where I went, hey, I'm pretty happy with that. Yeah, it's, it's pretty so awesome. Having that piece of news. One more, having, yeah. Yeah, sorry. So having that piece of news, I wasn't that worried about follow-up PSA. Okay. Well, that's good. It's just I know a lot of guys say that they have, like, PSA anxiety. So I, no, I didn't know that. Yeah. Cool. So then tell us about your erections pre-op were pretty perfect, weren't they? They were like <laughs> perfect Peter Pan, um, like a young boy. So then post-op, what happened? Like, I'm sure that you were told to, like, we always tell guys to when the catheter comes out it's safe to have a play with him and see what happens so what happened that first time you had a little play down there yeah not a lot um, okay. which was interesting because before we went in for surgery we spoke to a um a sort of friend from one of the one of the girls schools and he had his uh, surgery oh, maybe a couple of months before uh my diagnosis and, and i was still trying to make my decision he was having erections while his catheter was still in yeah, that's very rare, and those guys oh, I, are telling everybody about it. <laughs> I know it was it was very rare, and I wasn't expecting that. But I I, I thought that would actually be quite painful. I wasn't looking forward to that. But um, so straight after surgery of the catheter coming out, no, not much, um, and not much for a little while after. Mm-hmm. And then, so when did you notice a? Well, first of all, what was your first orgasm like without an erection? Was it weird? Uh, yeah, it was weird. Um, not a lot different though. Yeah, um, okay. it was it was weird, you know, having one without it being erect. So that yeah. was that was certainly something you don't think about very much beforehand. But but other than um, that, did it feel as good as before, or different? I sort of same same. Great. Okay. Yeah, I mean, because they vary a little bit beforehand anyway. You know. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, some some are better than others. Yep, yeah, that's right. And then what? So when did things start to go up again? <laughs> Uh, that so I started on the uh, <laughs> really really I, I, I started on the Cialis um, very early. I think Richard also recommended that um, very yep. early on. Sorry, my urologist. Yeah, um, always the day the catheter comes out, which was good. Uh, so I started on those, and I think it was very early on that uh, when I was seeing Sharon from from your crew. Yeah. Um, put me on the little challenge of, you know, four Cialis tablets or uh, I think she gave me the Viagra and some Spedra as well, I think, to try. Yeah. Um, so those were, there was a bit of a result there with those. Um, the Viagra seemed to work better than the, than the full dose or four tablets worth of the Cialis. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, look, the first time that gets, you know, let's call it nine out of ten, that's, that's you know, that's a happy day. That was yeah, a happy day. I mean, that was very early on, wasn't it? It was only a few months post-op. Uh, it was a couple of months, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, not hard enough to, to want to go and cut diamonds, but it was it was still pretty good. <laughs> and then now you're 10 months down the track. Yeah. How's it going now? Because, you know, I think the other thing I find is when guys do really well like that quite early, they then feel a bit frustrated at the amount of time it takes to get from there to back to cutting diamonds again. That's where I'm at. Yeah, it's been sort of slowish since then. Yeah. Um, I have noticed, you know, the occasional just bit of uh, swelling or thickening just for no good reason, uh, whether that's the Cialis doing its job of just encouraging or loosening the, 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 the things that stop the blood flowing in there. But I've, I've had, a you know, a couple of surprise pop-ups at night, um, yeah. which have been good. Um, yeah, so it's it's hasn't progressed you know, miraculously since then, but it's, you know, I, the signs are encouraging and, you know, Kendall 
candle just points to look you've had good results so far so everything is suggesting it's going to be fine in the long run and you know and remembering that you know it heals at 0 0.01 of a millimeter a month so you know that to get from a to b is so um like it's such a small amount of you know that you it takes a few months before you notice an improvement you know so per millimeter of what what Sorry, it's actually 0.1 of a millimetre a month. Yeah, the nerves healing, like, um, is that slow. So, you know, that's a long time to get. How long are those nerves? Pardon? How long are those nerves? Well, it's just from where they're damaged. So it's like how long's a piece of string? It's just, you know, when, they, when they're healing. So. Okay. But we do say the average person would take two years. Two years, yes, definitely. Yeah. Okay. So, but you've gone really fast at the beginning. So you've done amazingly well. And I think it's really common to see people then get frustrated because when it's like a gradual increase over two years, it's sort of a little bit more encouraging. Yeah, it's sort of a bit easier. There's when you go really great and then you kind of flatline, it's like, oh, damn, what's happening? But <laughs> what's happening? Be, yeah. be assured that it will probably keep going up. It's just takes <laughs> time. Yeah, and okay. what about a pump? Did you use a pump at all? Uh, started out quite um, regularly with the pump. Um, yeah, it's it, it's a frustrating thing to use. It's not it's not pleasant. And I've got three girls in the house, two daughters and wife, and you know the privacy and the time to do all that's a little bit difficult. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, I, I think when I started on that, the advice I had was, hey, it's got to be at least every day. And then talking to Kendall, I think I was every second day or three a week, and she said, look, that's still fine. Um, yeah, three a week is good. Yeah. Like if you because you can get quite good. Like I always recommend for guys who are getting no movement at all, at least five times a week for five minutes. Yeah. But if you're getting a bit of movement on your own, which you certainly are, then three times a week would be enough. But it yeah. still is so important to do that. Melissa, yeah. What? What? Go, Joe. I was going to say, Melissa, when we say three times a week, well, the research suggests that 20 engorgements per day, mm. up to seven days a week, there's a Michael yes. Kirby recommendation from 2013. But when you actually went and screened all the urologists across Australia, there's a big variation. There is actually no set recommendation. So no. three days a week is good, but what do you mean in terms of time and yeah. um, so protocol? What, so Joe's right. The, when you look at the, the average man, healthy man, will have approximately 20 to 30 erections a week when they're asleep, like just naturally occurring spontaneous erections, and that's what keeps the penis healthy. So in your case, because you're getting some erectile function on your own, reducing your pump but still actually doing it three days a week up, hold it for one minute, let it down, up, hold it for one minute, let it down, up, hold it for one minute, let it down, three times, which should take about five minutes, then you're getting, if you're doing that, you know, three days a week plus what you're already getting spontaneously, you're getting pretty good exercise. But someone who doesn't get any erectile function at all needs to do it at least five days a week. Yeah. Otherwise, they're not replicating nature. Yeah. So, and, you know, again, nobody has done you know, compared an apple and apples with this of exactly what. So there's a lot of different regimes. Some of them tell you you have to walk around the house for 15 minutes with the pump on full and, you know, and you just have to, I think it's about common sense and replicating what happens in nature. Everything's happy when it's working properly. So yeah. why wouldn't we replicate what's in nature? And also consistency long-term is the key, like doing something, going really and doing it 15 minutes a day you might do that for six weeks, but you're not going to maintain that for two years. And I had to cancel my Pilates class tonight so Melissa and I could uh, go out for dinner. <laughs> there you go. But, um, oh. no, seriously, we did have a um, colleague, uh, Patrick Lombroso, who's on this 
uh, podcast series, who's passed away of brain cancer, often mentioned Patrick. His PhD was actually focused on why men give up the pump, give up the injections because of poor patient compliance. And one of his things used to be that it was too onerous to do the 20 minutes. So Melissa was very clever and she she actually thought, let's make it realistic, a realistic aim. And five minutes every other day is a good start. Five, yeah. five minutes, five days a week is even better. But let's look at you. you. You're a 56-year-old man with three young female daughters. That makes it pretty challenging. Yeah, to two, two daughters and wife, yeah. Mm, yeah. It, it does make it challenging. What, what spurred me on initially, though, and I don't know if you've talked about this in your podcast, I remember you mentioned that, Joe, I asked you the question about um, my Jupiter's contracture. Yes. That will make me more prone to Peronis. So that, um, that, that certainly is an encouragement to do it a little bit more. Mm. And just I don't know if you want to talk about that, for yeah. So for the people listening, the reasons that so a Jupiter's contracture for anybody listening um, is when you get like trigger fingers in your hands, and if you Google it, you'll see a great picture. In fact, I'll put a picture of Jupiter's contractions. I've got plenty of good ones in the um, in the show notes. And if you have that, then you have a genetic predisposition to Peronis, which is a bent penis, and. The thing that prevents Peronis is having regular spontaneous erections at which you're getting when you're healthy at nighttime. And so if you're not getting those, then all muscles shrink and get atrophication and can get scar tissue anywhere in your body when you're not using it. So that's why using the pump and making sure you're getting exercise in that tissue of the penis is just so important. And that's something I see a lot where guys will have like you can't see a peronis or a bend in the penis when you've got a flaccid penis and they'll have their first injection and their penis will be shaped like a banana or hooking up in the air and they'll be like, the injection caused it. And it's like you don't get peronis from one injection. It's just you don't see peronis until you have an erect erection. penis. Yeah. So yeah. there's a lot of um, like miscommunication about that, I think, but I always do the same as obviously Joe did with you when I meet a guy preoperatively. I ask about a history of Dupitrins or Dupitrins, never say it. Dupitrins. Dupitrins and their mother or father having trigger fingers and then look at their hands to say, hey, you might be more prone to this. It's a 40% likelihood if you've got Dupitrins that you'll get Peronis. It's also Mm -hmm. one in six likelihood that you get Peronis from having a radical prostatectomy. Mm -hmm. But that's a paper from 2020 that Patrick Tolokan, another Patrick here from Western Australia, produced which helped me when my first patient um, from episode, Phil, I think it's episode four, um, where, where we actually talked about the risk factors. But back in 2014, when this first patient presented to me, he wasn't doing the pump. He wasn't doing the Cialis. Eight, nine years ago, we didn't have the practical people on the ground providing the services to ensure that patients were getting the pumps. We had a, a random, you know, opportunity here and there if if the urologist was dedicated to it but most guys weren't getting the broader education mm. like they are now and I, I would definitely think that those numbers have come down now yeah well, I even think I'm seeing less guys now with Peroni's post-prostate cancer than, than, I, than I yeah. saw eight years ago yeah but what I am seeing a massive increase in is patients just with Peroni's disease that from other reasons and I think that is from the education and the fact that people are talking about it and people are now like, oh, I've got a bent penis and I didn't know there was something I could do about it. And there are one in 10 men who have that too without this surgery. So Yeah, and the treatment is the same regardless. So, um, yeah, so it is something that we can help with. And you're right, using your pump 
post-prostate, def- post-date surgery definitely helps. And radiation therapy. And radiation well. as yeah. well. So, yeah, that's You guys great. are doing an awesome job. I'll pump you up then. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing a good job. So, yes, I'm a massive fan of pumps. And I think that we do need to, you know, I think I've worked in research, you know, and I think research is really important. But I also think it's important to remember that when it usually takes five to ten years for research papers to get out in the community and having a bit of common sense about what happens in nature and how we can replicate that to keep parts of our body healthy is is good too. We can't just wait for the evidence because if we waited for the evidence, we'd never do anything. Oh, but also there's very few clinicians that do research. So I always say to my patients, everything you read is going to be five to ten years behind mm. because I did it myself. And the research I got published in 2020, I started collecting data in 2013. Mm. Yeah, right I collected it for three years. By the time it went through the processes, it's actually about five years outdated by the time it gets published in terms of what we do and see in the practice because we do evidence building every single day. Yeah, We ch- modify our practice every single day if someone does something that doesn't work we won't repeat it Mm. and we learn and so there's that's my frustration with with research I find as well only about 80 percent of people that apply for research get funding so there's over 90 percent of people who want to do quality research that never get a chance to so yeah so anyway keep using your pump Peter Pan because It's important. Now, I wanted to challenge you on something you said a little bit before. Wait a minute. Joe's got some. What have I said wrong here? What have I I done? I don't know why she's doing that. Is that the pump music? Pump up the jam. Pump it up. Pump it up. (laughs) Do you remember this song? I do. I like to be a bit of disco. Okay, that's enough for now. Okay. That's pretty quiet. That didn't come through here. Okay, we'll we'll have to play that in the background. Anyway, um, so. And I hear this a lot, guys, telling me that, oh, it's going to be so difficult to use that because I have teenagers, daughters, sons, wives at home. And I just think that if you had a knee replacement and you had to do exercises on your knee, no one would be embarrassed about telling their family, I have to go and do my knee exercises. Granted, you could do them. But you're not going to do them in front of the TV, eh? No, granted, (laughs) you're not going to do that. But I do think that it's not such a bad thing and perhaps educational to be able to actually say to your teenagers look I've had this surgery and I know no teenagers want to think about their parents having sex so that might not be the option but I had this surgery and if men don't get nocturnal erections their penis shrinks and they might get all these other long-term problems and do our penis stretches I don't want that to happen because I'd like to be able to stand up and pee over a toilet in the future so girls I'm going into the bedroom to use my penis pump to do my exercises. Don't interrupt me. And they'll hopefully go, wow, that's pretty cool, Dad. And then we will open up the conversation. Well, we've sort of had half that conversation. Um, they, they know, yeah, they know that it's happening. And, um, you know, I told them about this podcast and then that was probably a subject that was going to come up. Um, <laughs> but the, the problem is not an open door policy, but, you know, they're quite happy to just come into our room and into the ensuite, yeah. God knows where, at any time of the day and, and just launch into a conversation. So that's, mm-hmm. you know, I don't want someone to inadvertently work on, walk in, even if I say, hey, I'm going to go, you know, the teenagers, they don't listen, they don't remember. No, anything. they don't. So can I so, ask, Peter Pan, do you have the bath mate for the one for the shower or do you have the vacuerect? Uh, the vacuerect. Okay, so Melissa worked out the vacuerect you can use in the shower. Yeah, you can. So let's share that info. Because that makes it perfectly private. Yeah, you can still use it in the shower. You don't have to use it in air. You just don't fill it up with yeah. water like you do with the bath, mate. 
but I've just had an idea while I've been talking to you. I think we should get some of those. You know, when you go to the hotel and it says, don't make up my room, I'm still asleep. <laughs> oh, we yeah. get some of those made that says penis pumping in progress. And it's like I should give one with, you know, yeah, to every patient who buys a pump and they can hang it on yeah. their door. Hang it on the door. Yeah, Enter work. at your own peril, pumping in progress. <laughs> I will say, though, one of the other frustrating things with the pump um, is that the rehab ring. The I really find it hard to get a good seal with that. I've taken to using it without any ring at all because it just seems to seal quicker and better yeah, and that's easier. That's Melissa and I's problem. We can't actually practice this ourselves. But my yeah, my reds, Roger, the resident penis, has practiced it quite a few times. Have you shaved your pubic hair nice and short? Nah, nah, that, I haven't done that. That's, that's the problem. problem. <laughs> oh, well, no one said I needed to go and do that. But tell me this. Have you ever been snorkelling and goggling and had your hair or your beard in your goggles? Yes. Uh, not from my, not my pubic hair. No, it's not that long. No, your face. <laughs> I know what you're saying. No, I yes, I have had that, of I course. And, and it leaks, leaks doesn't and it? it? Leaks. So it's exactly it the same. You've got to do some manscaping. Right. And yes. the other good news about that is it makes the trees look bigger through the bush. My son tells me something like that. All young guys do it. The woods bigger than the tree or something. I don't know. Yeah, I don't have the, that conversation with my sons at this point. Yeah, and if you are looking for something, there's a very amazing Australian brand called Nutbags that oh, have yeah. invented these like manscapers specifically for this purpose and they're no nicks so you can shave i have it on good advice you can shave it all and you don't get any bleeding and they're all great so they're called nut bags. okay what's the itch factor well when you shave all your pubic hair off which i did stupidly once and it was a very unpleasant experience it imagine. itches like hell when it grows back so um the better idea is to just trim it with the trimmers kind of give it a number two right you still get a good feel but you don't have the itch factor. Okay. And this is actually really important because we're encouraging you to do the pump and it's quite sort of a laborious, invasive, somewhat awkward thing to do. You want to be able to make sure that you're doing it properly in the time that you've got. Mm. So that one little bit of information can actually make all the difference. Yeah. And we, it probably is in some literature you've been given. We usually do talk about that when we um instruct people but sometimes we might not we might not say that one vital sentence yeah that can make the difference between you being compliant with it or not as patrick also uncovered yeah um, so i'll make sure in the show notes for this episode peter pan i put the photo of the dubitrons there you go i'm really glad joe said that because my tongue is getting twisted today and nutbag rumors i might just add you can have a triple you can have peronis Dupatrins and something called lederhosens. Yes. Lederhosens is the same sort of scar tissue, almost fatty-like cyst that appears in the plantar fascia of the foot. I have met two patients who've had all three. Mm. Okay. Not the the German dancing uniform. No. No, but they are named after that. I read the history of how they were named once quite a few years ago, and it is to do with they it's a German guy who named it, and it was something to do with those those dancing. And it probably would have been from the type of the shoes and stuff they were wearing. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Okay. Very interesting. Um so Peter Pan, do you have any no. magic to disperse to the listeners? Is there anything that in now that you're eight, nine months down the track, sorry, ten months? you would like to share with other guys, particularly if they're just about to start on this whole experience, given let's say they were diagnosed yesterday? Uh, I, I suppose to expect some frustration in how much information or help you'll get in making the decision. You know, if, expect that. Uh, there's lots of information out there, but 
it's difficult to make sense out of some of it and help that or use that to help you make your decision. Um, I think you've got to keep a sense of humour about all of the information you get and all the chats you have with people about this thing. But once you've made your treatment decision, um, you know, unless you're really advanced in your cancer, you've got time to think about it. You've got time to research and make yourself comfortable with the decision. You know, you don't have to rush into the decision, but once you've made it, you've got 100% commit to it and then say, right, I've made the right decision and whether I get good or bad side effects, I'm not going to regret the decision that I made and wish I'd done something else. You know, you've got to really be comfortable with the decision you're making and understand that if there are side effects, it's not because you made the wrong decision. It's just it's just what happens. And it's the one that you made at the time that was the most in deform, informed and the most, you know, um, comfortable for you. I think so, yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd liken the, um, the, the getting the diagnosis to being handed a pair of exploding dice. Okay. Right? These things are going to blow up and they're going to kill you at some point. You know, if you don't throw the dice and make the decision, it'll kill you. But once you throw the dice, you've lost control over what happens. You know, the dice are what treatment am I going to have? What side effects can I expect? Once you let go of them, then that's out of your hands. All you can do is as much as you can up front. And you can hang on to the dice for a little while and make that decision. But once you chuck them, then they're chucked. And you know what, Peter Pan, that is the essence of what Patrick's work was all about. And if you listen to episodes 50, 55 and 61, hit the psychological perspective as a psychologist focusing on um, prostate cancer patients and couples. And he said, when you get diagnosed, don't panic. Do your research, get a second opinion until you feel comfortable. comfortable, And that's what you've said. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, and as long as you're not too far advanced, you know, I feel sorry for some of the guys at the prostate cancer support group I go to who have come along after not having any tests for a long time and suddenly get a really scary and horrible diagnosis. And I couldn't think of anything worse than that. Um, and I, that's why I'm, I consider myself really, really lucky about the process I've had. You know, good diagnosis early. Um, you know, I only had one Gleason score of four, which said, hey, this is going to be aggressive enough. We would need to do something, but it hadn't that advanced that far. Got but some great support. Um, you know, good urologist. I think, I think yeah, everything's fine really well. But I must say that, you know, we've just had the campaign of November and before that Prostate Cancer Awareness Month. So there's not so much luck involved, to be perfectly honest, Peter Pan. It's you went to the doctor, you went and got tests, and you kept your ears open to education, and you're educating other people right now. And so it's it's terrible when someone gets an advanced cancer, but this knowledge has been around for 30-plus years now. Mm. So it is really important for guys to take responsibility and get an annual test yeah. and know their family history. That- you shared with me that your brother had had prostate cancer. So it's just that conversation between man-to-man, son, son-to-father. Sometimes we yep. don't have, so we we end up with advanced prostate cancer when we shouldn't. Yeah, well, and that's the other thing. And you know, the last you know probably learning for me is everybody that's had this go out and talk to everybody you know about PSA tests. Um, Especially if you know a man, another man. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've I've had a chat to a couple of guys at work um, individually and as a group. One of one of the guys from one of the other teams I work with said, "Hey, have a chat to all of my." You know, he's yes, got a demographic yes. where there's guys, a lot of guys over fifty, and I, I told him my story and. Uh, I was amazed at some of the lack of awareness there. One guy thought that the bowel cancer screening after 50 would detect that. Mm. They just, you know, these these are guys in their 50s that just have never even thought about it or had a conversation about it. Mm. That's that's scary. I had a a chat with a couple of my local mates and I said, oh, I've got this yoga for my memory again. You come along, came last year. Yeah, and I said, do you actually know what Movember's all about? They went, oh, men's health. I go, yeah, but there's three key messages that's, Prostate cancer awareness 
and testicular cancer awareness and male mental health. I'm like, oh, we just thought it was about growing a mo. I'm like, okay. And I said, have you had a PSA test? They said, oh, I had one about five years ago. Had one about 10 years ago. So do you know you have a prostate? They go, ah, I think so. I said, do you think I've got a prostate? They looked at each other and said, not sure. And then I said to them, you know what? You guys are sitting, having a cafe, having a coffee at a cafe in our western suburbs on a beautiful morning. Your kids go to all the top private schools. You're a lawyer and you're an economist. You are the most educated population that we have. And I'm actually stunned that this lack of knowledge is amongst you. So Mm. I'll leave that to Fonda. (laughs) Peter, actually, I've just come to me, something that Kendall told me as well. Your brother has had prostate cancer and he's had a a different treatment to you, hasn't he? He has, yeah. So I suppose we haven't talked much about the family history thing, but I'm... um, one of five sons, and Dad had prostate cancer a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, my eldest brother that you're talking about had it. He was diagnosed before he was 50. Uh, mm-hmm. So he went off for. Um, oh, before I talk about him, the, my youngest brother Paul, he um, he finished his. He got diagnosed after me. He's had his final cybernite treatment just this morning. Mm-hmm. So we're batting four four men out of one out of six in one family. Yeah. Um, so that's the other thing I talk about people a lot. But Jim, the the next one up, Jim had proton beam therapy. Uh, so he he would have had his uh, 2008, 9, 10. I think he was looking for solutions for himself. And I think surgery there was was open surgery. Um, it was very he, wasn't, he wasn't he wasn't really excited by that. Uh, radiation scared him. He was a you know, he was less than 50. Obviously, the side effects were a big concern for Jim. And uh, yeah, this option of proton beam therapy came up. Um, it was only offered in the States. Uh, he went to America. I think he, you know was there for three months getting treatments, daily treatments for, for a fair while. Um, so that's become more popular now. I think they're building a, a, um, a proton beam therapy treatment centre in Adelaide in the next couple of years. Um, right. There's more of them through Europe and a lot more in the States now. And I asked my urologist about that and he didn't have a lot of information about it. Yeah, I don't know anything about it. I've had a few patients go for it and about 50% yeah. of the time they've been treated and successfully but 50% not so mm. it's over here seen a little bit experimental because we don't have access to it yeah. but well I'd just like to ask as well is your dad still with us no dad passed away in 2007 um did he, so he had radiation what treatment did he have and did he pass away with prostate cancer was that the reason uh no he uh he had radiotherapy well maybe I'll say seven years before he passed away. Then the cancer yeah. came back. Uh, he'd had some other health complications, had some some other urinary things going on. He was knocked pretty low by by some of that when yeah. they re-diagnosed his cancer. He had chemo. His body was pretty weak, and he got pneumonia while he was going through the through the chemo treatment. Passed away from pneumonia. But it was all from the prostate cancer returning, by the sounds of it. Yep, yep. And they could have probably waited for that treatment to to restart the chemo, but I'm not sure how advanced that was. But yeah, that's what. Um, but what you're really saying, in a nutshell, is it's very prevalent in your family. So you guys have. Oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So I think the advice we made from yourself or someone else was, hey, all my uh, nephew, uh, yeah, all the nephews and, and my own boy have to sort of start getting tested from 40 if yeah. there's that much family history. Definitely. And now that I've been around in the city for all, I've actually had three families, all four brothers. I've looked after all four brothers. And recently, another family with just the fifth brother mm-hmm. and quite a few twins yeah. and brothers of three, all three, not just the one in two 50% mm-hmm. chance, but 100% chance. So um, yeah. we might see if we can contact your older brother. I'd love to talk to him about what 
proton therapy is one day and how yeah. that's been. So Kendall did suggest that. So I've asked Jim if he'd be keen and um, he's he's an out there kind of guy. We have a bit of a chat too, I'm sure. Great. I'd love to have a talk to him one day. So um, that'd be great. Anyway, so we might wind up. Thank you so much for talking with us today. No problems. That hour went really quickly at the end of that. It did. It was fantastic. And um, yeah, I'm, I've got a new business idea. I'm getting on to enter at your own peril pumping and progress <laughs> science. Uh, so that's great. Are your hangers going to be in the shape of the cock and balls or what are they going to be? Well, there you go. I was actually thinking of something a little more discreet, which is unlikely, right. but your idea that's, sounds great. Doesn't it? Uh, All right. Thanks, Peter. Tell you about a boy who lives inside me. He's been there all of my life. Hi, I'm Melissa, and I hope you enjoyed the podcast this week. Just a reminder if you've been diagnosed with prostate cancer, I've built a penile rehabilitation program just for you. It's an online program packed with information, exercises and advice along with proven strategies that will get your penis back in working order as quickly as possible in about 15 minutes a day. If you like the sound of that, then please head over to penilerehabilitationprogram.com and you can start straight away or there's a link from the RS Health website. We would also love you to review and subscribe and share this podcast so we can help more men. Links to Instagram and Facebook are in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there. So spread the word that help is available. All the best for now. Bye. I've got a boy of my own now. It fills me with pride to see him growing so fast into a man. His victories become mine. I cry his tears.